You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Next, we have Arun Jayabalan from McGee Women's. She's going to talk to us about severe hypertension. I think one of the most vexing things, at least from my perspective, is really knowing exactly when to deliver a patient. I think that's why probably all of us, the average clinician, would really love a tool to say, you know what, this is objective evidence that this patient is sick and that this patient needs to deliver. One of my nightmares is always the patient with a headache, the severe hypertensive, severe preeclampsia, patient with a headache, and you deliver based on the headache, and you know the first thing I want to know after they deliver is their headache better, because that's almost the test. Was I right, yes or no? And it's, it's all like a leap of faith. At any rate, I think what's less, I think, obvious now is really what to do with patients with severe hypertension in terms of timing of delivery. So I challenge Arun to kind of try to address that. And I, I really hope we get some discussion because I think this is something, at least it haunts me, and I hope to find it haunts other folks. So thanks, Arun. So switching gears a little bit to a little bit more uh, active clinical topic, so when Jean asked me to give this topic a while back, I was like, sure, sure, I'll be happy to. And then I sat down to actually prepare the talk, and I was like, management of severe hypertension. Do you want me to go through what medications to use for blood pressure? There are obviously a number of really, really nice resources, including tables and, and graphs and textbooks. Obviously, want to keep blood pressure out of a range that causes severe maternal vascular events, including strokes, cerebrovascular events, coronary events, etc. So then I called him back and said, what do you really want me to talk about? And it really is the controversy of when to deliver somebody with severe hypertension. This is sort of an example of the patient. For some of you, it may be really obvious in your mind what you do and, and why you do it. But as we delve into some of the guidelines and the data, you'll see that it actually is a little bit more uh, murky than one would like to think. So this is just a patient. I'm sure many of you have seen somebody like this, a 34-year-old Gravitatube Para-1. 28 weeks seen in the office with elevated blood pressures, then sent to triage, has a number of severe elevations there over a couple hours of observation. She gets a dose of IV antihypertensive medication as she's undergoing her workup for preeclampsia. She started on oral labetalol. Her symptoms and laboratory evaluation for preeclampsia were negative. She was given a uh, course of betamethasone and brought in as an inpatient for additional monitoring. The notes talk about her being stable and having severe features based on her hypertension. So the question is, how do you manage this patient? When do you deliver? And is the management and timing of delivery different if the patient has gestational hypertension or preeclampsia? I sort of retitled the topic, Real World Controversies in the Management of Severe Hypertension in Pregnancy. And over the course of the little bit of time we have, I wanted to kind of review and compare, contrast some of the different guidelines. So what are people doing around the world for this type of a patient? Review some of the evidence. The asterisk there is to say that we won't have time for an exhaustive review of the evidence. So just some highlights. And then potentially other approaches to risk stratification. 
So I'll start with ACOG since we're here in the United States. And that task force publication came out in 2013. And there is a clear differentiation of the definitions of gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. One of the big changes being that preeclampsia can occur with gestational hypertension, but without proteinuria if it included some of the severe features below that first bulleted line. Importantly, when we're talking about preeclampsia, severe features would include any of the following in that table. So that's the definition part. For the evaluation and management part, at least in the ACOG guidelines, mild gestational hypertension and preeclampsia without severe features are grouped together in their management. Severe preeclampsia has a fairly long and detailed section, including about expectant management, etc. There's not as much discussion about the entity of just severe hypertension, and we can debate that depending on how you read those guidelines. In the ACOG version, there's two levels of hypertension, mild and severe, and initiation of antihypertensive medications is with severe hypertension. So almost by definition, folks have the potential to progress to severe. And then timing of delivery is, of course, based on the first bullet there, whether they're mild gestational hypertension and preeclampsia or severe preeclampsia. The NICE guidelines from the UK, they do a very precise job of differentiating both the definitions and the management of gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. They have three levels, sort of stratifications of hypertension, mild, moderate, and severe. Generally initiate treatment with moderate hypertension, 150 to 159 over 100 to 109, or severe hypertension, and have fairly clear treatment thresholds. And they actually go through an algorithm, separate algorithms for gestational hypertension and preeclampsia. The point being is that this first box in the algorithm here is gestate mild gestational hypertension. This is with recommending delivery after 37 weeks. And then here we have moderate hypertension, recommending treatment back down here. And then with severe hypertension, they talk about treatment, evaluation, and if controlled, again, delivering uh, birth at 37 weeks. And this is preeclampsia where Again, the mild hypertension, moderate, and severe, and then a little bit more uh, complex breakdown in terms of the timing of the birth, expectant management with delivery at 34 weeks, 34 to 36 weeks in the setting of preeclampsia with severe hypertension and controlled blood pressures, and then after 37 weeks for the rest. So kind of moving around where it's, please speak up if I'm misrepresenting your version of the guidelines. SOGC Canadian guidelines, they really kind of changed up their definitions with severe preeclampsia, including this column of very severe conditions that warrant delivery. So essentially anybody with severe preeclampsia based on those definitions would warrant delivery. Also some pretty serious conditions in the uh, adverse conditions column, which would warrant a response that response may be expectant management or delivery based on additional details and workup. They do have a separate section that addresses the management of severe hypertension and discuss that there's insufficient evidence to make recommendations about the benefits or risks of expectant management for gestational hypertension, 
less than 37 weeks and generally recommend delivery at greater than or equal to 37 weeks. WHO, the focus is more on preeclampsia and eclampsia. The SOMANS, uh, very similar to what we've reviewed. ISSHP, I'm not going to go into detail. Laura McGee's group did a systematic review of all of these clinical practice guidelines and identified areas of consistency and inconsistency. And needless to say, there are some inconsistencies in the target blood pressures for non-severe hypertension and the timing of delivery in the setting of gestational hypertension. What is the evidence? So with respect to gestational hypertension anyway, and in many parts of the country referred to as non-proteinuric pregnancy-induced hypertension, the worries are whether it is truly a morbid condition or not. Certainly, there's a fair amount of evidence that demonstrates that gestational hypertension can progress to preeclampsia, and a number of studies that observational cohorts that have looked at that, Barton and colleagues showed about a 40-some percent progression to preeclampsia and about a 10% progression to severe preeclampsia. Importantly, that progression is inversely associated with gestational age at onset. So gestational hypertension that comes on at less than 30 weeks can have about a 50% risk of progression to preeclampsia. In a secondary analysis of an MFM network trial, investigators showed that adverse outcomes with severe gestational hypertension were worse than those with mild preeclampsia and comparable to those with severe preeclampsia, at least in their cohort. Most agree that severe hypertension regardless of preeclampsia, is not a benign condition. We can spend all day debating whether gestational hypertension and preeclampsia are part of the same continuum or whether they're different pathologies, but when you're standing at the patient's bedside and having to make uh, fairly concrete decisions, that uh, perseveration is not always possible. So the question comes up, but should the management of severe gestational hypertension essentially mirror or be the same as that of severe preeclampsia? And I think here it's important to differentiate that while uncontrolled or refractory hypertension is usually a fairly clear indication for delivery, in clinical practice, sometimes just severe hypertension without a good attempt at controlling it controlling the blood pressures is a trigger for delivery. And of course, the reason that's an important consideration is that control of hypertension can allow for safe prolongation of the pregnancy, and how long or whether this prolongation is useful is gestational age dependent. So some of those studies that I showed you were older, more observational cohorts, and we're going to go through some that are more contemporary, prospective, RCT type of study designs, And in advance, I'll just point out as we go through them some of the limitations in as we think about gestational hypertension, because gestational hypertension is often not looked at as a separate entity. It's often mushed with preeclampsia or mushed with chronic hypertension. And in many of these studies, the use of antihypertensive medications is not always clearly defined. And of course, in the US, we always want to see a U.S. population to convince us that the results of a certain trial might be applicable to our population. So I'll start with the CHIPS trial, which was published in the New England Journal in 2015, so fairly recent. It was a randomized controlled trial of less tight versus tight control of hypertension in pregnancy. Almost 1,000 women 
75% were chronic hypertensive, so a smaller group of gestational hypertensive women. There was no difference in the risk of fetal neonatal complications, which was their primary outcome, and no significant difference in maternal complications, which was their secondary outcome. But germane to our discussion is what was the progression to severe hypertension? It was about 41% in the less tight control group and 28% in the tight control group. The Hippotat trial, published in The Lancet in 2009, also deals with women with gestational hypertension, but combines them with women with preeclampsia. And this was our RCT of induction of labor versus expectant management between 36 and 41 weeks. The primary outcome was a composite of maternal adverse outcome. And their relative risk for this composite outcome was 0.71. So induction of labor was associated with less adverse uh, maternal outcome. And they concluded that induction is associated with improved maternal outcome and should be advised for women with mild hypertensive disease beyond 37 weeks of gestation. Importantly, though, severe hypertension was the most common adverse outcome. So it was part of the inclusion criteria as well as part of the outcome, making it potentially problematic. Birth weight and length of stay were significantly different between the groups, which would be expected for earlier delivery. So Hippotat 1 dealt with that 36 to 41, so termish group, and Hippotat 2 dealt with the time period between 34 and 37 weeks, so an RCT of immediate delivery versus expectant management in non-severe hypertensive disorders. And their primary outcome was maternal adverse outcomes and neonatal RDS. They excluded women with severe hypertensive disorders, but the key is despite medications. Some of these women with gestational hypertension and preeclampsia were on medications beyond 34 weeks. RDS was significantly different between the two groups with the induction group, the earlier delivery group, having a higher rate. There was no difference in the maternal outcomes and they concluded that given the increased risk of neonatal RDS, routine immediate delivery does not seem justified and a strategy of expectant management until the clinical situation deteriorates can be considered. I believe it's called the Phoenix trial is underway in the UK to further clarify this question. Cruz and Hibbard published a study in 2002, a retrospective cohort secondary analysis from the Consortium on Safe Labor, which is a multi-center NICHD-sponsored database, and they included about 3,500 singleton deliveries with gestational hypertension greater than or equal to 36 weeks and excluded women with comorbidities. Not sure if you can see this, but there's gestational weeks starting at 36 weeks to 42 weeks listed there. This column here is the rate of maternal morbidity. They found a nadir of maternal morbidity at about 38 weeks. And uh, this is the rate of neonatal morbidity and mortality and they found a nadir at about 39 weeks. The authors concluded that induction of labor at 30 to 39 weeks may be a reasonable option in a woman whose blood pressure is well controlled with reassuring antenatal testing and an appropriate for gestational age fetus. And this was interesting because this came out after the Hippotat trial. And of course, some of the limitations are that it's a retrospective study, database study, and it's hard to account for the censoring that happens with delivery by clinicians. So are there any other markers or factors that we can use for risk stratification? Obviously, to be clinically useful, it has to have a 
good negative predictive value or a great positive predictive value for adverse outcomes. And I think both Ravi and Sarosh talked a lot about it. In clinical practice, we use clinical signs and symptoms. And I think that we find that that may or may not be a useful risk stratifier. Headache is particularly problematic. Proteinuria, there have been debates whether the amount of proteinuria was predictive of adverse outcome and really seems more like a plus minus is more important than the degree of proteinuria. Are there any laboratory parameters, labs that we already get that might be helpful even within the normal range? Does the platelet count number uh, help us out in terms of risk of progression? Our group had done a lot of work with uric acid looking at whether that is a potential risk stratifier. And while it's associated with small for gestational age infants and early delivery, it's probably not useful in the clinical setting. Full Peers is published by uh, Peter Von Dettelson and their group uses a combination, almost a checklist of symptoms, signs, and labs to predict adverse outcomes in the setting of preeclampsia and suspected preeclampsia with an area under the curve of predicting of 0.88 with a 98% negative predictive values. Things we've been talking about and can be particularly useful in facilities that don't take care of a lot of women with preeclampsia. I'm going to breeze through these angiogenic factors since you just heard a whole talk about it. The point here is that there are a lot of studies that have come up over the years since that initial 2006 Levine study that have specifically looked at angiogenic biomarkers in the context of risk stratification. I think a few that are particularly worth mentioning is Sarosha's study using a S-flip PLGF ratio cutoff of greater than 85 with a hazard ratio of 15.2. And then the study by Lucy Chapel and group utilizing low PLGF and the potential for use with respect to, to its negative predictive value for being delivered uh, for preeclampsia within two weeks. And then the recently published uh, study in the New England Journal that also uh, demonstrated a favorable negative predictive value with a cutoff as noted. I think as we talk about the clinical utility, Baja uh, uh, brought up some of the concerns with any of these biomarkers. And I think Jenny mentioned, and I think we all agree, there really needs to be a good study looking at clinical utility and outcomes. So... Our patient's back here. Questions that come up, how do you manage this patient, inpatient or outpatient? What maternal and fetal surveillance do you do if they're an inpatient or if they're an outpatient? When do you deliver? 34 weeks in the absence of progression, 37 weeks, 38 to 39 weeks? Would the management change for gestational hypertension or preeclampsia? I can tell you that even within our group, you know, and we love to argue with each other, all in, you know, in good faith, but it drives the residents crazy. They think we're schizophrenic. They think we don't know what we're talking about. They love watching us argue. Patients get very frustrated. They feel like they're getting mixed messages. Now, certainly within our group, we have an agreement that we're going to try to stick with plans with the understanding that uh, anytime we're dealing with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, the best laid plans get thwarted. But I was interested in throwing it out there to the group. I see a number of people that were involved in a number of different guideline development. So hopefully a little bit of discussion following this. 
She was started on labetalol um, 200 twice a day, and they were in the normal to mild range. Maybe we'll get a show of hands. How many people would deliver this patient at 34 weeks? So you have a couple people that would deliver at 34 weeks. 37 weeks? Okay, more. 38 to 39 weeks? A couple more. We don't have agreement here in this group. Does everybody have this? I mean, I think what Arun like, talks about is what we all argue about all the time, which is why I asked you to do this, but we have fights through the residents, right? So, you know, the residents will say, well, you say 34, but so-and-so says 37, and he's smarter than you, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's something I've learned from my mentor, uh, Dr. Sevai, is that, you know, 34 weeks is an arbitrary number. When you have a diagnosis, the moment when the patient came in, you really think that she actually may have a severe feature and you manage as such. And I think, you know, that there is that you admit the patient and you manage her inpatient, you observe her, that's the right thing to do. But if she hasn't had any other need for increase of medications, no more severe episodes, no abnormalities, no symptoms by 34 weeks, I guess that under close observation, this is going to be discussed with the patient and the patient can probably go beyond 34 weeks. Now, Beyond 37 weeks, probably the risk benefit is not there to me. I would not go at all beyond 37 weeks. Would you manage that person as an inpatient or an outpatient? If I had to push IV medications for her, I mean, if there was truly a severe hypertension, probably manage her inpatient. I mean, I would argue there are lots of studies looking at presenting blood pressures, presenting labs. And their ROCs over and over again are sitting somewhere at like close to 0.6 to 0.7. So just base your entire decision that you have to push the IV, so now somehow you decide that three weeks later it's going to be at the same risk. And that's why I think we need to do better than what, so exactly the point, you know, 34 weeks is arbitrary, and so it's not like a 140 very arbitrary. So everything that we do usually in these patients is very arbitrary, which is exactly what we and, you know, if you deliver everybody at 34, as one of my partners says, if we deliver everybody at 28 weeks, you know, we'll have great maternal outcomes, potentially. But <laughs> When most of these babies may not need to be delivered, right. no, no, but, you know, there's lots of problems that maybe, again, I want to push back on that because there is a hypothetic uh, you know, even if you look at, there is long-term data that kids do not do well when they are older, when they are delivered less than 39 weeks. That's, that's the holy grail of just what ACOG is right. pushing, deliver everybody beyond 39 weeks. So I personally believe that just because you are so worried about that patient, you are pushing them to be delivered somewhere between 34 to 37 weeks, which is again very arbitrary, is not perhaps the right thing to do in the 21st century. Jenny. I think that the so conversation and session that any other patient is very nice. It's very unusual that there's a problem that she can't get on to one before. What I find, especially in my place, is that she's already on two agents. She's already on two more than increasingly more ones. Well, if we say that, you know, we keep going. And someone indeed gave those nice headsets to be able to say that. So we do have good evidence, I think, that if someone who's on no other features and has autism disease, they just want the attention. Plus, they might be. Uh, 
Can you see I'm trying to keep a straight face to, to not let my biases get into the mix? I think a bunch of slides ago I talked about sort of there's the uncontrolled refractory hypertension, and then there's the severe hypertension that requires a little bit of medication and maybe a little bit of titration that gets people trigger happy in terms of delivery. And is that right? Is there wrong? What is our evidence? And what should we do? I'm just going to say that in these non-core what we found that patients who had just taken hypertension and very severe abnormal endothelial profile, we had did this course in terms of adverse outcomes of patients who had proteinary hypertension. So this whole idea, and thank God proteinary is out of this entire definition because proteinary is not coming to the end. But at least in our what we found that patients who had simple hypertension and no evidence of proteinuria, if they had abnormal endothelial profile, the object of having it was exactly the same. And so it's Very good point, yeah. absolutely. And and using that as a in the ROC curves, yeah. etc. Yeah. Or use the or have the use of a parent black hypertensive as a marker of the severity. Yeah, that was just common severity because it is in this parent Sure. I think I absolutely agree. I think that the I mean, I think. We talk about different flavors of preeclampsia um, potentially around the world, and I think that's important to keep in mind as we can't just translate what we do here to this group, to that group, or, or likewise that group to the U.S. Okay. I think we agree that we don't really know what to do. <laughs> That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP 
or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.